Glad that uh, there's a few of you here to join us this evening and some representing spouses that are not here this evening. Just to, I know the, um, the advert said presented by Clinton and Corin. So, so let me explain that. So my wife and I sat yesterday and kind of put the structure of the talk together. Um, we've looked at um, one of the mistakes parents make is not making enough time to prepare properly for things like this. Um, so, so I'm going to just talk us through the, the content of what we discussed yesterday and there's quite a lot of scriptures that I want us to, to look at and they're going to come up on the screen. I'm happy to also send you the notes so that uh, you can make notes but you can also just listen and, um, and then I'm happy to send you the notes. So the plan is that I'll sort of just work through the material for about a half an hour. Um, maybe take note of any questions that you might have along the way and then at the end Corin will join me up front and then we'll have a time of Q&A. Uh, and that's um, not prepared, that's off the cuff, so um, no guarantees for, for what that part will produce. Um, but let's, uh, let's just open again this time in prayer as we think about parenting and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this evening to just come and hear from your word, uh, your heart towards us as parents, uh, the great joy and privilege and responsibility that you've given to us. And then for us to just think about many of the things that we perhaps do wrong, the ways in which we fall short, and how your word encourages us um, to model our lives more closely upon the patterns that you have given to us in your word and the wisdom that you provide for us in your word on the subject of parenting. So we do pray that you would uh, bless our time um, as we just consider this together and our Q&A at the end, that it would be something that is helpful to us to just leave here this evening appreciating more and more uh, your fatherhood of us, your perfect fatherhood of us, and, um, and our desire to be parents that bring glory and honor to your name. So we ask that you'd bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I thought what I'll do this evening is just start with uh, two or three foundational um, passages uh, in Scripture for parenting, just to set the scene, uh, and then we're going to look at uh, some of the mistakes that Corin and I discussed that, that we've made and that we, we see other parents making uh, and that we feel God's Word speaks to. So just the first um, passage in terms of a biblical foundation for parenting is Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 uh, and to 28. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them, and God said to them, and here's the crux, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see there that parenting was part of God's plan right from the very beginning. Uh, Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 to 9. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Yes, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children 
And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So from these three passages, um, we, we see that God's pattern uh, for humanity, part of his perfect and good uh, pattern in creation was that of parenting. Uh, so every child that God blesses us with is an incredible gift from the Lord. Uh, and the Lord encourages, as we saw in Psalm 127, lots of kids. Um, our quiver is to be full of them. You would never go into battle as a soldier without at least six arrows in your quiver. Um, so I'm not sure what that says for, for most of us, but I think we're falling a bit short. Um, but there's the standard. But what God says is that with large families come great honor. Um, with blessing and honor of children, however, also comes great responsibility that God has given us to teach and instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. But notice what this passage, Deuteronomy 6, is not saying. It's not saying that we are to instruct our children to love God. As if loving God is something that they must learn to do out of obedience. No, what we are instructed here in verse 5 and 6 is that we must love God. We must love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And then verse 8 and 9 speaks about God's word being something which we deeply value and treasure. So much so that all of our actions and our thoughts, all of our daily comings and goings are done with a, conscience, a conscious intentionality that all of our lives are lived out in our love for God and our obedience for his word. So that's verse 5 and 6 and 8 and 9. And then sandwiched in between, we've got this command uh, to live out all of our lives. Uh, sorry, sandwiched in between this command to love God fully. We've got verse 7, which teaches us to then teach our children diligently about God and the things of God as part and parcel of our everyday life. In the home, when you drive in your car, when you walk in the park, when you go to sleep, when you rise. So I think it's crucial for us, and we'll see this a little bit later, that the command to us is to love God fully. The command to us is to value and treasure God's word in all of our lives. And then in between that, we are to teach our children uh, to, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Um, so it flows out of our relationship with the Lord. So with those foundational verses then in place, let's consider uh, a couple of mistakes. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. And I think I know everyone here tonight. So I've tried to pick my examples of Johnny and Susie. There's no Johnny and Susie's here tonight. Are we okay with Johnny and Susie being our no-name brand examples of children this evening? So I think the first common mistake is Corinne and I were chatting about our own lives and, and what we see in the pastoral ministry. The first mistake that parents make is that we idolize our children. Uh, and this should be obvious, uh, but if anything in our lives becomes an idol which we worship, uh, we are then breaking the first and second commandments uh, and we are directly violating that verse there, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Welcome, guys. Come and join us up front. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
So that leaves no room for idols. Uh, the first and second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol in the form of anything. Now I doubt that any one of us would ever try to justify keeping some wooden or golden carved image on the mantelpiece, which we would then bow down to and worship. But we must admit that very often our little Johnny or Susie functionally takes the place of our affection and our worship. We give in to their wants and their demands. We bow the knee to their desires. We orientate our whole life around what makes them happy. We spend huge amounts of time and money into making them the best children that they can be. And that is measured according to the worldly standards of academics and sport and music and other accomplishments. And the reason for that is that they will then win more of our worship. The better our kids become, the more we worship them. And also we garner the worship of others for our kids. We see that all around us in the world. And so often I think that creeps into the, the homes of Christians as well. So how do we counter this uh, mistake of idolizing our children? I think here's just a couple of practical tips that, that Corinne and I were chatting through. I think we need to teach them from young. When they come out of the womb that the world does not revolve around them but that God is the center of our universe he created the world he created everything in it we exist to bring God glory uh, and and this was actually taught to the children of the previous 500 years of raising kids since 1647 most children in um, Protestant Christianity were raised on the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, that has fallen by the wayside in the last 20 or 30 years, sadly. But up to probably 30 years ago, if you asked any child who called themselves a Christian, what is the chief end of man? They would answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's lost on our generation of parenting. And so I think our kids are growing up without that centrality of God uh, and enjoying him and glorifying him as the chief purpose of man. So we need to remind our children that from an early age. We need to teach them from young the full storyline of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that the Bible is a book about God who saves sinners through his son Jesus. It's not a book to entertain children so that they go to bed nicely or to help you have your best life now. I think if we are grounding our children in the full storyline of Scripture from young, we help them to understand where they fit into God's big picture. And there are some great children's Bibles that help with that. Uh, and certainly once the kids get older, lots of resources to help you do that. We need to show them that God is the primary person of our worship. Um, that although we love them greatly, our children, our love for God is greater. Now, some people might think, well, if, if I do that, my kids will feel insecure. They'll be threatened by the fact that I love God more than them. But actually, if we look at the scriptures, if we love God more than our children, that will provide them with real comfort and real security. Because the more we love God rightly, the more we will love them genuinely, sacrificially, and securely. Uh, because they will know that our love for them is as Christ loves us and not based on their performance. And so just practically on that, I, I would encourage you that um, 
that part of helping our children to not be the center of our universe is to um, have a high view of the Lord's day, uh, a high commitment to the ministries of the local church so that your children from young see that church and involvement in the life of the church is not negotiable based on their moods. It's not based on what their friends' activities have planned for a Sunday. It's not based on school or sport commitments. I think if we can establish early in our child's life that, that God is the center of our families and that the body of Christ is a priority for us, then as they grow up and these other things start to place demands on them, uh, they will be given their right and proper place. We also need to teach them the value of patience uh, over passion. Uh, one of the great books that we've enjoyed reading to our children is Pilgrim's Progress, uh, The Little Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read this to your kids, um, you're missing out and they're missing out more. Um, it is an amazing, amazing book, this one by Helen Taylor. I think it's got a new cover now, but it's the full story of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, both of Christian uh, and the second half is Christiana. Um, and the amount of helpful biblical discussions we've had around the Word of God through that book is quite amazing. Um, and it's one of those books where the kids want you to have devotion time with them because they want the next chapter. But there's a story in there that John Bunyan tells of patience and passion. And I'll leave you to go and read that for yourself. But we need to teach our children the value of patience, of waiting on God and His timing and His provision over demanding that they get things now. So they need to wait for and appreciate every good gift is coming from God. They need to learn the fruit, even from young, of hard work and saving and generosity and service of others. This will help them to realize that they are not the center of their universe or ours. And then I think lastly on this point, just to place realistic expectations on them to achieve. To achieve in line with their natural gifting. To achieve in line or in proportion to seeing all of their gifts as ultimately intended for God's glory and not for their own. Uh, one of my favorite quotes by a, a famous ex-Honey Ridger, Grant Gerritz, is every parent thinks his donkey is a racehorse. <laughs> Let's remember that the King of Kings chose a donkey to carry him into Jerusalem. And if we are so busy trying to turn our donkeys into racehorses, we might m miss out on the purpose that God has for our child to serve him best. So let's let God dictate the gifting and the, the priorities and the bent of our children and not the world around us to try and put unrealistic expectations on them. So that's the first mistake that I think we make is to idolize our children. The second mistake I think follows from this, it follows a similar trajectory, which is when we idolize our work or our home. Uh, and again, this issue of idolatry, it's a massive problem for every single one of us. Uh, Tim Keller, he takes the famous quote from John Calvin, which says that the human heart is an idol factory. And Keller fleshes it out like this. He says, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. 
And so while some parents make the mistake of turning their children into their idols, uh, other parents make work and home their idols. Now, there are certainly lots more uh, modern idols of the heart, but I think these two of work and home have the greatest impact on parenting, on our children, on our families, and our roles as parents. So let me start with the men. I think for men, often the problem is that we idolize our work because a successful career promises honor. Honor in terms of salary, honor in terms of power, honor in terms of influence, honor in terms of acceptance and validation. But what we saw earlier in Psalm 127, verse 5, is that a man who has children receives a heritage from the Lord. And he's like a soldier whose quiver is full of arrows, and he will be honored at the city gates. In other words, a good father will be honored at the city gates, not just by his friends and colleagues, but even by his enemies. That's what Psalm 127, verse 5 says. So a dad who idolizes his work, and we often use the excuse that we're doing it for the family, to provide for them, to give the kids everything that we want or that we never had. But I think that's a cop-out. Because a dad who idolizes his work will seldom be home enough to be able to love and teach and play with and faithfully discipline his children the way God requires. And if you know something of what I'm talking about, even when you are home, your mind and your attention is back at the office because that's really where your heart is. So we need to guard against idolizing our work. For the, the wives, for the moms, the problem is often more that we idolize our homes uh, because Pinterest has told us that a home which looks like it belongs on the front cover of Fine and Country magazine or whatever they called is what validates your value and your purpose as a mom and will provide you with lasting happiness. Um, but Genesis 1 tells us that God gave to Adam and Eve a mandate not to build castles which no one was allowed to enter or to create museums with all the beautiful treasures of this world on display. But the mandate was to fill the earth with children. It was God's mandate to Adam and Eve. And then to nurture and cultivate them like a fruitful garden. And if you've ever cultivated a fruitful garden, you will know that that's often a messy business. So a mom who idolizes her home will not see it as a place to grow and nurture her messy family, which may look a bit uh, disorganized and dirty and lived in along the way. Who would have thought? but will convey to her children that her perfect Pinterest image of beauty and order is more important than them. So, so what does God's word say to help us correct this mistake? Just a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So men, your treasure, if your treasure is the office, that's where your heart will be. Ladies, if your home is, is the treasure, that's where your heart will be. And God's calling us to treasure our families, our children, in a healthy way. Um, not to idolize them, but to give them their right priority. Proverbs 15 verse 16, better a little with the fear of the Lord, then great treasure and the trouble with it. 
And then Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's quite an interesting verse because basically it's saying if your life is filled with the love of money and you are discontent with what you have, then you do not treasure the gift that God has given you, that he will never leave you. He is not sufficient for you. If you think about these verses, there's only one thing on this earth that you can take with you into heaven. There's only one thing that you can take with you into heaven, and that is godly children. Everything else, work and homes and everything money can buy and everything that we accomplish on this earth stays behind. The only thing we can take with us into heaven are children who love the Lord. So what message are we sending our kids about the value of an eternity with God if we neglect them and their souls for the earthly success of careers and beautiful homes? So that's the second mistake. The third mistake that we've made that we see other parents making is substituting things for time. And this is also linked to idolatry, but I think this is one of us actually placing the problem of idolatry before our kids for them to worship. We know children are exhausting at times. They push all of our placing the problem of idolatry in our energy, the consistent teaching and training and discipline and playing them. Daniel and Bridget have just spent a week in Cape Town, a week driving around Cape Town in the car with Grant and Cornelia with Ben and Amy at the back. My kids, kids came home exhausted just, just watching Grant and Cornelia be for them to see the lights come on of what it takes to be a parent. Uh, it's all the time. And, and we can sometimes, for selfish reasons, just give in to the easy way out. So we hand them a device to pacify them, to entertain them. We let them sit and two and hours and play computer games or watch TV or scroll through social media. Uh, we give them toys and gadgets. And what we are doing in that, if we don't guard how we give these things to our children, how we allow access to these things, is we're actually teaching the children that things replace relationship that if we don't guard how we give relationship is hard work mom and dad don't have the energy for relationship so they give us things in its place and if that's true in their relationship with us as parents then we mustn't be surprised that when they become teenagers that things have replaced their relationship with god as well we've taught them that We've taught, taught them that, that relationship is hard work and, and it's, it's much easier to just give you something to entertain you or something to play with. Um, and, and so what kind of an appetite will they have for a relationship with God? Some biblical advice then in this area, Luke 12 verse 15, uh, Jesus said, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's about relationship with Jesus. It's about relationship with other people, not possessions. So what message are we sending our kids when we replace time with things? Godliness, Timothy says, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So let's be careful that we don't put this idol of things uh, in front of our kids' hearts to entertain them. The fourth um, mistake 
and this is a more difficult one, under-emphasizing and over-emphasizing family devotions. Um, and I think this is difficult because many parents err in one of these two directions. I think firstly there's an under-emphasizing of family devotions, of teaching our children about the things of God, um, which practically looks like we never or very seldom uh, do family devotions. And if we do, it's simply a quick prayer before supper or at the end of supper or maybe before bedtime. But other than that, I think if an alien from outer space visited our home from Monday to Saturday, or at the end, they would not notice any difference between your home and your unbelieving neighbor, except for the fact that on a Sunday morning you all head off to a building and you sing some songs and you listen to a dude talk for a while. So that's the one thing, under-emphasizing family devotions. The other emphasis that we've seen in many families, the other mistake is kind of an overemphasis on this, where parents take this responsibility so seriously, you know, that little Johnny and Susie have to sit through a 45-minute theological lecture every night after supper, followed by a time of hymn singing, and then compulsory prayer time where each child must pray for five to ten minutes, otherwise there's no pudding. And both of these are deeply damaging uh, to our children's appreciation for God and the things of God. So, so what is the biblical corrective to this? Uh, well, listen to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Did you see it? does not say teach up a child in the way that it should go. Train. Now, training certainly includes an element of teaching, but it's so much more than teaching. Training implies doing life together, teaching by the example of our own lives. Again, this is a different passage from Deuteronomy, but it says something very similar. Deuteronomy 11. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall then teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So again, as with Deuteronomy 6, our daily instruction of our children we see here flows out of a consistent and intentional Christian lifestyle. We see here in this verse, God's word must be treasured up in your heart, your soul. You must bind them on your hand. You must keep them at the front of your mind. And then only should you teach your children. Talking of them when you sit, when you walk, when you drive, when you lie down, when you rise up. And so yes, family devotions, structured times of family devotions are a great blessing. Please don't get me wrong there. I've got some great books here that you can have a look at. That We've tried various different devotional books over the years with our children and some were really bad. Um, some were really um, just way above the kids level. These have been a wonderful resource. They come out of the Desiring God, um, so John Piper's Children's Ministry. Get them in Good Neighbors. You're welcome to have a look at the end. These times of family devotions are a great blessing. But if they don't flow out of faithfulness in loving and living out the Word of God in your marriage, and in your attitude to work, and in your approach to your home, and in your attitude to money, and the things that you watch on TV, then giving your child a 30-minute theological lecture at the end of the night before bedtime is not going to lead them to love and worship God. It needs to flow out of your love and devotion to, to God. And it needs to be real. And I think um, I'll give one or two examples of that in a minute. 
So the, the, the next uh, mistake we make um, as parents is to underestimate our children's aptitude for spiritual things. Um, we were constantly amazed when our children were, were young at their hunger, their aptitude for the things of God. Uh, this was seen in their love for us, reading them Bible stories from these good devotional books, Pilgrim's Progress, um, and we saw in this an ability far beyond our own to memorize scripture and to memorize the words of hymns. We would often play Christian worship songs in the house or in the car, especially albums for kids. When we drove, we would sing hymns in the bath, we would sing at supper time on the way to school in the morning, and it's amazing how the words of those hymns stuck in our children's minds uh, and how many wonderful moments of teaching flowed out of the words that they were singing. So my son is down in the, in the basement. So Carl, can we put the volume up? I'll mute myself and let's just put the volume up or you can mute me um, just for this next little video clip. Just one minute of Daniel. You're gonna have to put up with my shocking singing. Um, but I want to just show you the, the teaching moment that came out of this one little video when Daniel was about three. No, you must sing it for the camera. You must sing it for no. the camera. No, okay. Jesus, my Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he rose. With a mighty triumph for his foes He arose the victor from the domain And he lives for it What is a doctor man? What is a doctor man? He arose What is a doctor man? <laughs> so, I, I could not get past the doctor man What an opportunity to explain to my son at the age of three what it meant for Jesus to rise from, as a victor from the dark domain. And what I'm trying to get at here is this incredible hunger and aptitude for spiritual things while our kids are young. And um, I think educational psychologists and things will tell you that by the time your kids are five or six or seven, their trajectory is largely set. And so how much should we just be pouring into our children at this young age? Another example is when I was studying in London, um, studying theology, so I was in my mid-30s and I had to learn the Greek and the Hebrew alphabet. And I would walk around the house trying to repeat the alphabet out loud and I'd sit at the dining room table with my sheets and kind of read it out loud so that it would like get stuck. And one evening at supper time, I think I'd maybe got 10 or 12 of the alphabet letters like sorted Bridget just rattled off the whole Greek and the whole Hebrew alphabet just by having heard me repeat them a few times around the house. So then I had to go to her for extra lessons. Um, but the point is, and I could extend that to scripture memorization, and when we were at Constantia Park, they, they had a program for the children to memorize scripture, singing hymns. Um, we are often the problem in our children's spiritual intake because we think 
it's boring or we think it's too much or we think they won't be able to uh, grasp the things uh, and so we hold back uh, from them. And I saw this most clearly as the pastor in Moira Baptist. We lived right next to the Brunfield Township. That's the one that always burns all the trucks on the highway. So not a great place for kids to grow up. And we had about 20 children from the Brunfield Township that used to come to Moira Baptist Church on a Sunday morning. Many of them orphans. Most of them um, really poor education. And we made a decision at some point that from grades five upwards would sit in the church service. And so I had to develop worksheets for the children, they were called pastor's pals and the pastor's pals were there for the kids to follow along during the sermon. And the biggest objection I got was from the, the Moira Baptist Church parents whose kids all went to the tri- private school up the road. And they said, oh no, my child could never sit through a whole sermon and certainly could not fill out a worksheet. Well, within the first month, what we saw is every one of those children in Brunfield was filling out that worksheet from beginning to end. These children from the township were sitting in the service, they were listening to the sermon, they were getting probably 50 to 75% of the things filled in during the sermon, but the parents of the church were the ones who objected and said, no, this is too much for Johnny and Susie. We, We are the problem often in not realizing how much our children are hungry for the things of God. So some biblical encouragement in this area. um, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. If that's not happening in the home, how is that ever going to be a reality in the church? This is where it should start, in our homes with our children. Joshua 1 verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it, for, when, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. The, the words of the law shall not depart from your mouth, you shall meditate on it day and night. That means we're always supposed to be thinking and talking and discussing the word of God. And in Psalm 19 verse 11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And um, again, just to to the place of hymns and Christian music, good Christian music, uh, we've heard just recently from, uh, it was Jordan Jordan, uh, Krauser, who's just shared about how uh, her playing in the worship team and having to practice the songs and reading the words of the hymns has had such a profound impact on her spiritual life. The sixth mistake, we're almost done, that parents often make uh, is not living out the gospel in the home. Um, And I think this is probably one of the greatest challenges to being Christian parents. It really ties in with Kyle's sermon on uh, on Sunday about setting an example to lead our children to Jesus because the reality is that our children are learning far more from the way we live as parents than what we teach them as parents, especially if our hypocrisy is blatant uh, and what they see contradicts what they hear. yeah, we've just been in over the years just shocked to, to find that we will be counseling a, a couple who's on the brink of divorce. Their, their relationship at home is hostile. Uh, they shout at each other. They fight and scream, but they insist that after supper we do family devotions. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And our children see it, and they learn very quickly to reject all that we're teaching because it has no impact in our own lives. 
So how do we handle conflict between a husband and a wife? How do we handle conflict with our children? How do we deal with our own sin uh, and the sin of our spouse? Do we model repentance and forgiveness and grace and patience? Um, Do we display forgiveness and kindness and self-control to our children? Uh, If not, then it doesn't really matter how much we teach them. Um, Actually, what we teach them often will cause more damage because they're going to receive it in a spirit of hypocrisy. And so some biblical encouragement in this area, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, and yes, the crux, that those who live, that's us as Christian parents, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is past, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, I mean we often think of this in terms of mission of the church, but where's our first mission field? It's the home. So this is saying that you and I as Christian husbands and wives, we are not living for ourselves as Christians. We're living for Christ And because Christ has reconciled us to himself, we now become ministers of reconciliation to our children. Um, So great encouragement there for us to live out the gospel in the home. Matthew 5 verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but... On a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before your children, first and foremost, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are so good to talk about these verses in the world out there, but we don't apply them in our home. So may that encourage us to live out the gospel in our homes. And then lastly tonight, um, as I said, this is by no means an exhaustive list, we Uh, mistake number seven that we make is to exasperate our children. Um, That comes from the NIV. Uh, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse four in the ESV says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's a provoking, it's an exasperation. Now, what is clear is that everything God requires us to do in terms of training and teaching and disciplining our children in the instruction of the Lord is undone when we exasperate them. Notice that there's a but or an instead. Don't exasperate them. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So if we do exasperate them, we are not going to be successful in training them up in the instruction of the Lord. You can't exasperate them and train them exasperating them, provoking them to anger, basically turns them off to this instruction and training in the Lord. What does it look like to exasperate our children and how can we avoid it? Just uh, three, three things here to sort of make it a bit more practical. Um, I think we exasperate our children in inconsistent or unfair discipline, treatment, rewards and standards. And what I mean by inconsistent is inconsistently day by day. So today... Johnny, I need you to do it. Johnny, don't make me count to three. Johnny, if you don't do it now, I'm going to give you a hiding. Johnny, I said to you, you better do it. Johnny, go to your room. Okay, so go to your room happened, I 
the fourth time. The next day, Johnny, I told you to do it, now I'm going to give you a hiding. But yesterday you gave him four warnings, today you gave him one. That you've created a problem. You're going to exasperate your children because you've been inconsistent. Um, unfair also in terms of uh, or inconsistency between parent and parent. So one parent says one thing and another parent says another thing. One standard is applied by one parent, a different standard by another parent. That is going to prov provoke your children to anger. It's going to exasperate them. And similarly, inconsistent or unfair treatment child by child. When you treat one child differently to another child, that is going to very quickly breed a spirit of exasperation in your children. Um, James chapter 2 verse 1 my brothers show no partiality favoritism unfairness as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy but mercy triumphs over judgment. So don't be unfair. Don't be impartial to your children. Treat them consistently uh, and treat them the way that you know Christ has treated you with mercy. Romans 2 verse 11 for God does not show favoritism uh, and neither should we particularly to our children. Uh, secondly, we exasperate our children when we are overbearing or harsh in our discipline and criticism. Um, and again, I don't think that needs much explanation. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 21 says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Ephesians 4 verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Think about this with your children. It's only what is helpful for building them up according to their needs, and their needs will change at different stages of their life. But our goal in, in discipline and criticism must always be to build them up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And how often do we not speak to our kids in one or more of those terms. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then Proverbs 15 verse four, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue, a bitter tongue, a harsh tongue uh, crushes the spirit. It's very, very difficult to rebuild the crushed spirit of a child because you've been overbearing in, and harsh in your discipline and criticism. And then lastly, um, we exasperate our children with unrealistic expectations. And listen to, what, um, yeah, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. What does he say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are meant to model Christ to our wives, to our husbands and then particularly as parents to our children, um, we exasperate them when we load them 
with unrealistic expectations. And very often they are not expectations at all that come from Scripture. They are expectations that the world has placed on them or that we in an ungodly mind, frame of mind have placed on our children uh, and, and that provokes them to anger and it breaks their spirit. So to end this evening, just one last verse and then we'll break for a Q&A. Um, let's remember that as Christians, um, all the benefits and blessings that we have of being children of God. Listen to, to this verse, 1 John 3. Uh, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, has lavished upon us, some translations say, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been made fully known, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And this is a wonderful application for us as parents because as we have a heavenly father who's lavished us with his love and his purpose is that as we grow and are nurtured and are sanctified by him, we are becoming more like him um, and one day we'll see him as he is. Are we modeling Christ to our children? Are they looking at us and becoming more Christ-like uh, as they watch us purify ourselves in Christ, that we are representing uh, God and his uh, fatherhood uh, to us as his children in our homes. So there's um, an insight into some of the mistakes we've certainly made along the way um, and some of the things that we see um, perhaps are common in, in many people's lives. So let me, let me pause at that point, ask Corin to just come up and join me. Um, can we take, which mic can we use, Kyle? Can we just use one of these? Oh, they're on the chair, yeah? Um. This is Rome 1, 2 or 3. Okay, um, you want to just come and sit here? And then if, if we can just, just for the live stream's sake, if you do ask a question, maybe we can just ask you to do it on the mic so that others can hear as well. Um, yeah, we've by no means got the answers to all these things and have done it all right. Um, so let's, yeah, let's just maybe open it up to you if there's any questions or comments or um, things that you can, um, other mistakes that you maybe uh, have made or have seen and want to maybe just discuss. And you can talk about Johnny and Susie, it's fine. Matt. Got two questions for you. Thanks. Um, the first one you mentioned the scripture that talks about large families comes great honor. Um, how how applicable is th was was that a contextual thing or is that a a biblical principle that still applies in full force even today? I don't. Um, I think we've got to talk about the norm and then we've got it. So I think we must be careful of the exception. We know that there are many people, not many, but. We know of people who struggle to fall pregnant, who struggle maybe just to even have one child. And, and certainly we're not talking about that. I think the reasons today for having small families is often not based necessarily on biblical principles. So I think the biblical principle is be fruitful and multiply. Um, and yes, God gives us the grace um, 
for each person to know what that means with a desire to serve God faithfully as parents. Um, when we started, um, I kind of wanted four kids or more. Um, and, and, um, and, and we had the discussion and, and kind of we, we ended up saying, okay, one at a time. Um, yeah, it's, and we took it one at a time. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, when, when it got to the third one, maybe you can just fill in there, I, I, we had to reach a, a, st- a stage, I just switch it on, um, where we decided that we were being faithful to God and to his calling on us to par- as parents and for me to also understand and love my wife, and she can maybe explain that, that we stopped at three. Yeah, I think also... Um you have to take it one child at a time, and, and you don't know what lies in the future. And like Lyndon said, some, some people will have white child, one child, and, and we know people, and they desperately wanted more, and it just didn't happen. And it was just how the Lord had, had designed that to be for them. But I think in our situation was that we, yeah, we just took it one child at a time, and as the Lord blessed us, we were grateful. But I do have a quite a a bad back and I think by the time Hannah had been born I yeah I knew I don't think I'd make another pregnancy and I think that was in a way what decided it for us and that's why I'm saying you you cannot plan you can't plan these things ahead and say that's right and that's wrong kind of thing because you don't know what lies ahead in your future uh, for you or your wife so I think you just take it one day and one child at a time and and, and that's all that we can do, yeah. But I, I, do, I do think the principle is that we should appreciate and value children as a gift from the Lord. And I think often our decisions today are made on the financial, the standard of living. So if we've, if we've predetermined what our standard of living will be, then we work back from that to see how many children we can fit into the equation. And, and I think that becomes the, where, we, where our motives perhaps become unbiblical to some degree. Um, obviously, there are practical limitations to what you can realistically afford in terms of, you know, when you get more than three kids, you need a seven-seater car. You know, a seven-seater car comes at a price. You need a three- or four-bedroomed house. And so you've, you've got to be realistic with what God has enabled you as a husband or as a couple to afford. But I think we've also got to be careful that we don't place too much emphasis on a standard of living that dictates primarily smaller families. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. And then just lastly, you mentioned, obviously, God's mandate is for us to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Um, But a concern that I've always had is the earth is filled with sin and and death, and there's not even a guarantee that they'll come to salvation. So how do you reconcile the command to be fruitful, but in such a sinful world? Yeah, so I think that's a good question, and I think the Lord didn't retract his statement of be fruitful and multiply. Um, and I think a good example of that is when, when the people of Israel were sent off into exile in Babylon. Um, they were all sulky and moaning by the river Kebar, and they were longing back to Jerusalem, and, and, and God sends Jeremiah to go and tell them, no, move into Babylon, build houses, plant gardens, give your daughters in marriage, have children, and again, the same thing, be multiply there, um, don't increase, don't decrease. So that was God's people, the small group of the people of Israel in the midst of the most pagan city and nation in the world, Babylon. And God says, settle down, get married, have kids, increase, don't decrease. 
And so I think, again, if we balance that with the mandate of Christ giving this uh, ministry of reconciliation to Christians, if Christians dwindle in number, how are we going to be effective in the proclamation of the gospel? And yes, there aren't guarantees to our children being saved, but there are biblical principles that God has put in place for us to be faithful to the kids that we've raised and, and leave their salvation up to him, but we must be faithful with that. So uh, I think it, we must be careful of the mindset that we looked at in Proverbs, for example, with the sluggard. The sluggard doesn't go to work because he says there's a lion in the street. Um, well, there may be a lion in the street, but God's said if you're gonna not go to work, you're gonna go hungry. Um, so I think we've, we need to look at the positive commands in scripture that yes, the world is broken, yes, there's no guarantees, but God's purposes for his people remain the same. Don't be shy. Thanks, Clinton and Cara. Um, so it's relating to discipline. Um, were there any particular things that you reflect on that you would have done differently from a discipline perspective in your home? Um, and then related to the consistency of discipline, just appreciating that each kid is so different, um, needing to treat them as individuals but not be inconsistent in, mm. in discipline. Um, those two, three, start there. Maybe start with the one, the kid's been different. Okay, you want me to start? <laughs> okay, I'll start talking and then she'll get some... She'll, she'll correct me, then you'll get the right answer. Um, look, I, I think, I mean, Carl dealt a little bit with it on, in one of the Proverbs on Sunday, you know, spare the, spare the rod and spoil the child. Um, it doesn't say, well, spare the rod on some kids and, and, and not on others. I, I think what the point that I'm trying to make there is that not, the rod is not, uh, you know, giving a child a hiding is not a fix-all for every scenario and every situation. Um, I think the point is that Firm and consistent discipline across your children um, is important, but dealing with them differently. So, so if I think back, yeah, I don't want to divulge too much from our home here, but but like Bridget, Bridget was was the hardest child to give a hiding to. She squirmed and screamed and twisted, and um, she was like freaked out with hidings, but we eventually still got to give her the hiding, whereas Daniel and Hannah, I can't remember too much, you know, they, they knew, okay, I've got to do this, and you know, um, but we still, we didn't apply a different rule to Bridget, we just had to um, understand her and help her to see over time that this hurts us too, this is not something we're doing out of anger or out of um, spite, but it's for her good. And so part of her needing to learn about why she needed a hiding was that actually this is for her good because God says it's for her good. So whereas we didn't necessarily have to have that same conversation with, with Daniel. Um, but we didn't apply different standards of discipline. And what if, 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 a, if an act that required a hiding for Bridget, it requ that same act would have got a hiding for Daniel or Hannah. Um, yeah, just to say the, in our home from the beginning, certain things uh, from when they were little, they knew if you did that, you got a hiding. Other things were, were maybe not as severe in, in the punishment or whatever, or correction that we would give them, but 
but things, for example, if they lied. Lying for us was a big thing. Um, and so there were one or two of which lying was one where we just decided, if you do that, you know, you will get a hiding straight away. Other things depended on, yeah. Disrespect uh, Disrespect or, Any, and, anything, yeah, yeah, disrespect to us. To, um, as parents. As parents. And I think that was also just in, in, the, in using shepherding a child's heart and things like that to just see if, if, if our child disrespects us, who they see, how will they ever respect God who they don't see? So for us, certain things were, were like a, a deal breaker with regards to, okay, you get a hiding for that, and other things were not. And I think that we tried, Clinton and I were on the same page, we tried that to establish it from the beginning. And the kids knew, as little as they were, they knew if you did that, you have to get a hiding for that. But, I mean, looking back at, at mistakes we've made, um, I suppose we all look back and we, we think, yeah, there are things that maybe we could have done differently in that moment. But God's also gracious mm. in, in uh, helping us in those situations. But, yeah, I, I can't think of specifics now where I feel, I don't know if you Yeah, I think, think my, my regret is that we didn't give hardings for longer. Um, no, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, that was that was the, my next question is like did you you know because as they get older like they they understand more like yeah. is it is it acceptable to withhold things um yeah. you know like uh, not grounding in necessarily but something like that you yeah. withhold something that they enjoy it's like a punishment it hurts but it's not you know, it it lingers. Then you know, it doesn't like a yeah. hiding. You deal with it, yeah. and then you yeah. absolutely. I, I think I think what we found is that because we were consistent with with what what I think what Karen was saying about lying and respect, the things that clearly showed a heart that rebelled against God, that was defiant against God. So lying. Clearly, God's word teaches that lying is an abomination to the Lord. It's the language of Satan. So to be playing games with lying was something that we helped the kids to see. That was something that God sees very seriously. And similarly, the disrespect issue, because we are God's, we are God's vice regents over our children. So if they're disrespecting us, they're disrespecting God. So the, the things that we could directly a, a link to a direct affront to God was something that we helped the kids to see was serious and that's why it got a hiding. Um, and I must say, I think because we were consistent with that when they were young, um, those kind of things never really took root and became an issue later on. So the, the, the hidings faded or fizzled out, I would say, probably in, in middle of primary school age. I don't think we ever gave high school hidings. Um, I mean, I got lots of high school hidings but, but by the headmaster back in the day. I mean, I wish the schools would still do that today, better than three hours of detention. Um, but, but um, yeah, I think because we were consistent with that, we saw the fruit of that quite quickly. But then, obviously, other sins start to develop in the children as they get older. And, and I think there it is appropriate to, to take away certain privileges or to... Um, yeah, do have certain forms of punishment um, or discipline that that they feel more than just a hiding. I mean, Daniel would have, I remember at school, I mean, Jacks was lacquer because you got six Jacks and it was over. And the consequence of your deed was literally done 
like 30 seconds, you ran around like red-faced for you know, a few minutes, and then, and then it's over, whereas the girls had to go and sit for hours and you know, do all kinds of community service and stuff. So sometimes a hiding's not the most effective thing, particularly as children get older. Um, and I think we need wisdom there. We, we've got to be careful, though, that we don't shift to that mode of reward. Um, because I think reward starts to s- just give them a system of manipulation that if they do what God requires of them, we're going to reward them for doing the right thing. Um, I think that, yeah, that's something think, that we, we try to steer away from. Yeah, I think that was, for us, we chose to not do a reward system at all. Um, if, if we asked our kids to do something or if they cleaned their room or whatever, for us, they should be doing that. They shouldn't be rewarded for it because then, it, for us, it, created, it would create that thing of, well, I'll do it if you're going to give me something for it. And I think we have to be careful about that. If we ask them, please, can you pick up the stuff in your room or please, can you go and do that? Uh, they need to obey and they do need to do it because we've asked them to do it. If we give them a reward every time, they're going to ask for a better reward next time before they listen and do something. So we were quite, for us, we chose to not do and that. Again, it comes to the heart because we, the heart is greedy by nature. Just obey. So, yeah. so then the kids just learn to manipulate the system to actually get what they want as opposed to knowing that we do the right things because that's what God requires of us. Um, and when we don't do what God requires, well, then there's a consequence. But to flip that and say, well, if you do the right thing, there's an earthly reward, I think becomes very dangerous. Kids are very, very clever. They will manipulate that one chop-chop. No, no, Gina, we never had cats. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry you didn't have cats. (laughs) So I'm not a parent yet, but I just wanted to um, ask, um, how did you deal with stuff like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and all of that kind of stuff? I don't know if that's a silly question, but I was just interested to know how as Christians you deal with things like that. Because I know some parents have Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and stuff like that, but yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't. We definitely had the tooth fairy that deposited money in the slippers for the teeth yeah, until we the, the kids the, you know, yeah. were a certain age. Um, I did we but I don't think we ever did this whole like Easter Bunny. No, we didn't. Look, so I think Easter Bunny, the Easter Bunny thing was something we, we probably always steered away from we as a family and as a church no. in terms of Easter's about Christ and his death. And, um, and similarly with Christmas, we, we always tried to keep the focus of Christmas on, um, we, we did celebrate Christmas um, and, and giving of gifts and things, but again, used the opportunity. Our Christmases were always part of the church or whether we were on holiday or not, we would have some sort of family devotions to remind the children of Christ's birth. And so we, we tried to keep Christmas and Easter always centered on, on Christ. Um, but we certainly, mm. with Christmas, gave gifts I don't think we ever made a big but deal about Santa Claus. Never made Claus. a big thing about um, Santa Claus or anything but, like but that. But we didn't no. have an issue. I mean, mm. our kids were terrified to sit on his lap in the mall, so maybe that helped. <laughs> I think there was um, once. <laughs> it was you know, once. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't kind of something that we had to really keep, keep up going. But I, I didn't, yeah, we didn't see it as kind of evil or pagan or something like that that we steered away from. It was just something we didn't, we didn't make much of. Um,
Any others? Secret? Okay, and uh, Jason and then... Yeah. So, so hello. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't researched too much on Halloween because just for me, it's like evil. You know, just all the, all the, all the pagan sort of dark, um, sort of stuff around Halloween. I think is definitely anti-Christian um, in its origins. Um, and so I kind of never, yeah, we've just never really entertained that because I think there was a, a blatant anti-Christian element behind it um, so that we've, we've sort of steered away from that. Um, yeah, I think it's just that thing of to not get influenced by the culture around us who, and the stuff that they all do. And, and yes, we need to be able to give an answer to our kids. So that's good actually for us to go and and then read and say, okay, well, where does this really come from? But I, I think it's that thing of just, because we're living in this world where there's just so much stuff happening and everyone celebrates and all the kids get all excited about it to try and just make sure that you don't just fall into, into that and, and let your kids just do it because they're having fun, but, but actually where does it lead eventually when they just carry on doing it and they get older and, the, the costumes get more gross and yeah, I think we have to be careful with those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but we so, never so, so maybe related to that is, is things like, and maybe I'm going to tread on some toes here, but so, so things for us like Harry Potter um, was the, it, 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 it was promoted, I mean lots of Christian families read it and loved it with their kids and stuff. We took the view that scripture is quite clear about the, the evil nature of magic and sorcery and necromancy and wizardry. The Bible is quite clear on that. Our concern was not so much with Harry Potter and watching the movie or reading the books. It's the message that says we can take something which the Bible says is evil and we can turn it into entertainment. So we're desensitizing our children to saying, well, it's, it's not really bad. And, and you know, I don't, so you can take a Harry Potter story and and there's, you know, the likelihood that the child's going to get drawn into the occult from a Harry Potter book is, is not high, but it's certainly sending a message to the child that says magic is okay, magic is fun, magic is cool, um, whereas God's word says magic is bad. You look at the book of Acts when the magicians were saved, the first thing they did is they, I mean, it was like multiple years worth of income that they brought to the streets and they burnt it. So if the magicians are burning their magic books when they become a Christian, and then Christians are giving magic books to their children, we, we've got a problem there. So I think with things like Halloween, with, with Harry Potter, and again, we've got to be careful when we move into the whole fantasy genre of, man, uh, whatever, you know, almost everything nowadays, you know, Marvel and, and all these kinds of things. We, we've watched some of those movies with our kids when they're older because there's a discernment to be able to, to distinguish that which is real, versus that which we believe. But with children, to introduce them into movies and things where they can't discern what is real and what is fantasy or make-believe. Um, and what is fantasy and make-believe is actually fundamentally anti-Christian um, in its values. I think we've got to guard our children against that. Um, Jace? 
Cool. So from the point of view of daily devotions, which you had mentioned you had been through multiple books to advise you and stuff, um, what aspects would you include? Would it be based on your daily devotion um, necessarily? Were there specific, was it consistent or inconsistent? Would it be by consistent and inconsistent I'm talking about, would it be maybe in our daily devotion on a Monday, it might be a hymn or um, talking through a hymn and how that glorifies God and what the hymn talks about? Um, or was it consistently in God's word and because of the daily devotions quite structured, what did that involve? Yeah, I think, um, so obviously you've got to realize that your kids are, are different stages along the way and I think one of the big challenges is when you've got kids with a varying age. That's quite hard because what a three-year-old needs for daily devotions and what a seven-year-old needs for daily devotions is quite different. Um, but we try to most of the time sort of work, pitch, I think we probably if I have any regrets, we do feel that we kind of left Hannah out of the equation a little bit because we started with Bridget and then Daniel came along and he was kind of, we would kind of always talk maybe a little bit down from Bridget and up to Dan, you know, up from Daniel and then Hannah came along and, and she kind of just, she probably missed out on some of that dedicated um, younger daily devotions that, that we had with Bridget and Daniel when they were young because she sort of slotted into what we were doing with the older kids. But again, I mean, it's amazing what they absorb. Um, but when they were little, up to, our, I would say, up to the end of primary school, um, we were able to regularly have family devotions around the supper table. So that was our normal pattern, supper, and then after supper, we would have family devotions, and then the kids go and do whatever they wanted to do. From high school, that became very difficult. And, and, and family devotion, sorry, just to get back to your question, we, we've tried different things. We've worked through catechisms over the years, so I think most of our kids will know what is the chief end of man, um, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, we've, we've read children's Bible story um, Bibles when they were younger, and when they got a bit older, we worked through books like this, which really deal with a whole bunch of themes, you know, God's gospel, uh, God's promises, God's word, God's providence, God's wisdom, uh, God's names, God's battles. Um, and all of these books are thoroughly Christ-centered. Um, so we would read through that, and it's a page and a half, and read it through. There's some scripture that you have to read, and we would talk to the children a bit about it, and, and we would pray. Um, once the kids got to high school, um, and their schedules became much more demanding at school. We lived obviously in Moy River. Um, the, the, it's a boarding school, so there's a lot happening in the evenings because they've got borders. So our kids got sucked into a lot of the activities there. It became a lot harder to do family devotions. And so that's when we shifted more into then teaching the children now that their own walk with the Lord is something that they have to own and start doing devotions themselves. Um, and the challenge there is that they weren't necessarily saved at that point. So you're now expecting an unsaved teenager to do daily devotions. Um, but we try to encourage that and we try to help find good books for boys and good books for girls that engaged with the issues that they were engaged with. Um, and, and yeah, in God's grace, he worked in their hearts at different times to bring about that work of salvation. Um, I think one of the things Corinne and I chatted about, which is quite hard, is this thing of teaching your children to pray. Um, there's something good about teaching little children that they can talk to God. 
um, and to teach them to pray from a young age. But I've also heard children at the age of sort of 10 praying, Oh, mighty Father in heaven, uh, I beseech thee. For, you know, and, and, you, you get, and they've learned to mimic the praying of the preacher or the, or the father or whatever. And you discover down the, down the years as a teenager that there's no spiritual life whatsoever. Um, so so pray, pray in terms of talking to God, knowing that you can bring your request to God, knowing that you can always ask God for forgiveness. That's good. But I think to kind of expect children to, to, to be obedient in praying when, when they feel uncomfortable to do that um, is almost teaching them a kind of legalism that I think we've got to be careful with. So the teaching element um, we've seen, you know, in many families where someone who's grown up in a home with family devotions and they get saved at the age of 16 or they get saved at the age of 20, suddenly you've got a brand new convert who is like theologically mature because all of the stuff that they were taught as kids that they really were not interested in, I mean, I remember growing up, I hated family devotions. I really, my dad was like, and I just wanted to go and watch the A-team, you know, and, and sometimes it was in the day, there was no PVR or whatever, so if devotions went on a bit long, you missed the first 10 minutes of the A-team, and then like the plot is, um, but when the Lord saved me at, at sort of 20-ish, all of that stuff that I'd been taught over 20 years just fell into place, and, and there was a depth of theological understanding and maturity that was beyond a one uh, someone who'd been a Christian for six months because all of that so, so in that sense I want to encourage you to keep on being faithful in the teaching and instruction with your children um, but you need to constantly be reminding them that they need a personal relationship with the Lord um, especially when they get into their teenage years I think you want to add there? Anything else? The singles group was much bigger than the marriage group tonight. So if Shane did a good job, then hopefully in a couple of years' time, this group will be bigger and that group will be smaller. <laughs> but um, I, don't, I don't know. Is anyone asking questions online is the question, Carl, but I doubt so. No, I don't know if too many people knew about this one. Um, Gina. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, like, I often hear people say, oh, wait till you have kids, you will have no time for yourselves, none of this, this, this. How do you, like, make time for your partner? Because I've also heard that, like, once a newborn comes, mothers are always very involved with the newborn, leaving the husband out. And, like, how do you, yeah, manage your, your marriage, like, above your children? Um, I don't know if that's going off topic, but yeah. <laughs> well, just to say from my side, um, I think this dovetails in with um, not letting your children rule your life and sort of them being the center of your universe. And I think that starts from young, that you set definite times for definite things to happen and that there is order in your day. Because in doing that for your baby from little, your baby knows this is sleep time, this is eat time, whatever. In doing that, 
you are freeing time up for you and your husband. Otherwise, it's chaos. Otherwise, it's coming and it's going, and it's now I don't know if the, if the baby's tired or and the baby stays up like till who knows what time and just sort of half falls asleep, and that creates chaos in your relationship. So I think for us, we I set a routine with my with the, with the kids from young. And in doing that, in setting a routine, Clinton and I had time for each other because at a certain time they went to bed and they would sleep. And then we could sit and we could catch up on the day and, and had time to do those things. I think for us, we just found and, and did see in, even in, in yeah, people close to us where they didn't set that routine. It was just, there was just a constant movement of Child's there, then child's not there, then child's there, then it's just chaos then. So I think you have to try and do that to make, make some routine so that you find time for you and your husband mm. um, to have time together. Um, that's just what I just found with us. Yeah. yeah, thanks. If I can just confirm that. So we made certain, and that goes through to my extension with church as well. We, we made it, I mean, from when our kids were little babies we didn't stop going to church because we had kids. Um, our kids came with, and you know, we didn't have a nice Sunny Ridge back thing with glass. They just sat on the floor. We had their blankets when they were little, you know, and we brought their snacks with them. So they grew up knowing that we go to church on a Sunday, uh, at least on the Sunday mornings. And, and what we did there is that if, if Karen looked after the kids, um, remember I only went to the pastoral ministry in my mid-30s, so all of the season was when I was an engineer. Um, so... We were taken in turns. If Corin looked after the kids the Sunday morning, um, then I would stay at home with the kids on a Sunday night and she would go to church. And if I got to get the service in, then so we would alternate like that. We made church a priority and we structured our lives. But similarly with work, I mean, it was we agreed that irrespective of my day, I would be home at half past five. Was it five? Half past five was, was bath was time. Five o'clock, bath hour. time. Purple hour. Yes, and it was my was job to bath time. the kids while Corin made supper yeah. and then we did supper together as a family we did family devotions and the kids were in bed by half past seven um, and and as Bridget got a bit older she was allowed to maybe read till eight but Daniel and Hannah went to sleep and so you, you didn't kind of just put them in the same box at every season of life but they knew that half past seven was bedtime and that was our sanity time mm -hmm. that was when we reconnected that was when we just like breathed mm. Um, mm. and then if I had work that I had to do then you know nine half past nine if Karen went to bath well then I would do my other work so we created those priorities for ourselves and and the family the kids grew up knowing that that's important time mm. Um, mm. if we didn't do that I don't know how how we would have I just think structure is important yeah. if there's no structure things are so liquid that you never have time to just the two of you together yeah. so f I think that's crucial to just have structure and and a, a, a kind of a good routine um, and that will help and every now and again you can get a date night if there's in-laws or someone there to <laughs> to to look after your kids which is also important to just make time to get away and and go out for an evening or something you know? yeah so, so does that mean that you had to step out of some weeknight ministries to protect that time together. So, so we we um, we led the small group, the young adults group in our home, pretty much like the groups that you guys are all from. 
Um, we tried to do, I think what we've tried to do here as well, that we've put the group in homes where there are parents with young children. And our kids grew up knowing that, you know, the, the, the house is full of people on a Sunday night. We've got memories of Bridget. She would lie down the passage at her door so that she could listen to and sing along with all the songs that we were singing in the lounge. And often after Bible study at 10 o'clock when the young adults left, we would find Bridget fast asleep at the door. Um, you know, so again, we, they knew that this was important and they had to be in bed and they would maybe greet the folks when they arrived and then they would have to go to bed. So I think it helped having that um, in our home. Um, but yeah, you got it and that's not always possible. And, and sorry, when it wasn't possible in other seasons, we alternated. So I would stay at home on a Wednesday night and Karen would go to Bible study and and then the next week we would flip it so that there was always one of us that was able to get to a small group. So we speak about the gospel a lot. It was one of your, we don't live out the gospel in the home um, mistake. It, were there things, I think as parents, especially if you know, if grown in the, up in the church, you talk about the gospel a lot, were there very intentional ways in which you brought the gospel to bear in your home? Um, or was it mostly out of your example, um, particularly maybe in the context of discipline as well? Mm. But, yeah. I, I think we, I mean, Corin, um, Corin really helped me there with regards to um, Shepherding a Child's Heart was a book that she read and then worked through with a young mom's Bible study. And so I think the approach to discipline in shepherding a child's heart, it can sometimes be a little bit mechanical and I'm not saying it's the perfect book and there was another book, I think Ginger Plowman's book Don't Make Me Count to Three, which was a much more practical application of shepherding a child's heart, a bit more balanced I think. But the point of that is that you always connect a discipline to the heart. And if you connect it to the heart, you're connecting it to the gospel. You're helping people, yeah, your children see that that they, they are sinners, they've done this thing because their heart is not right before the Lord and, and ultimately they're needing to ask God for forgiveness for what they've done. They also need to ask their sibling to for, for forgiveness or their parent for forgiveness, but they're needing God to forgive them. So I think we try to bring the gospel into discipline in that way regularly. I think one of the hardest things for me has been to actually live out the gospel when I've sinned against my kids. Um, when I've sinned against Karen in front of the kids um, or if I've sinned against the kids in being harsh with them or having lost my temper or having been harsh with Karen in front of the kids to go and actually say sorry to them and to ask them for forgiveness to tell them I've sinned against mom I've sinned against God in sinning against mom and I'm asking them to forgive me those have been some of the hardest times I've had with my kids but I think that's been times that they remember and I remember of being like, this is genuine, this is real. Dad's not just teaching us stuff here, they're actually seeing that. So I think it, on the kind of asking for forgiveness and seeking their, or repenting and seeking their forgiveness um, has been a, a, a very important part of, of being genuine, that they see that we are not above reproach, that we need the gospel as much as we are teaching them that they need the gospel. Um, and if there's anything else that... And I think just using, we really are blessed in this day and age with tremendous gospel-centered resources for family devotions and things like that, which I don't remember were too much around when we were kids. Um, 
but, but we certainly have a lot to choose from today which helps. Um, maybe one more question. Um, it's not often that the married stay later than the singles, but um, um, it's a bit more complicated, she says. Yeah. <laughs> Um, then I just want to add something just um, on which I think is, is crucial. Just make sure that when you argue, you never do it in front of your kids. Um, I think the damage that we cause when we argue in front of our children is huge. Mm-hmm. It causes major insecurity in them and just a, yeah, just a long-term damage. And, and and we, we've had times where that's just happened because something has just happened and, and the kids were there. And you look back and you, you realise you should not have done that. But that's one major thing I just, I think we also just thought about needing to mention. Just if you need to argue about something, just don't, don't do it in front of your kids. It's, it's never a good thing to do. Um, go to the room, go in and finish your argument there. But don't, don't try to not do it in front of your kids. Yeah. And if you do, ask their forgiveness. Okay, any, any other questions? Okay, let's thank you for that and let's uh, close in a word of prayer and then I think there's some, hopefully still some refreshments left. Maybe not. Lord, we thank you for this time this evening. Uh, We thank you for the blessing of children to those of us who have children already. Uh, We give you thanks and praise for your gift of life uh, to us and the wonderful blessing and privilege we have of raising children. Uh, Your word reminds us in Malachi chapter 2 that you bring a godly man and a godly woman together because you desire godly offspring. You grant them the spirit of God in their union as believers Uh, because you desire godly offspring. And so while we know there are no guarantees, Lord, we thank you that this is your desire and that you've called us to be faithful in raising our children to know and love you. And um, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in that. Those who have children on the way, those who desire children, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless them in this desire, that you would help us Uh, as a church to value and appreciate our children. We want to just give you thanks this evening for our children's ministries of this church, for Bible Land and Compass and and Edge and Fusion. We we thank you for the wonderful way in which our children are taught and instructed in the context of the church. But we do realize, Lord, that the primary responsibility is ours as parents um, to be faithful to you in living out the gospel, in living out our love for you in front of our children. Forgive us when we fall short. Uh, in this, Lord, and, and help us, we pray, to, to day by day grow in this wonderful blessing uh, of, of not just being married as two believers to represent Christ's love for the church, but to show our children the love of a heavenly Father for them as we love them as you've loved us. So help us, we pray in this, and uh, bless us, we ask, and may we be fruitful and multiply for the name of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.